Hello, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. You're listening to the Financials Edition, taped today on Monday, March 27th, 2017. My name is Gabby LaPera, and joining me on Skype is John Maxfield, banking specialist. How's it going, John? It's going great. How are you doing, Gabby? I am doing really, really well. Um, I was just telling Austin that I've had my, my first taste of adulthood in that I needed an antacid this morning. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> adulthood. Boo. I know. It's terrible. Um, but yeah, how was your weekend? It was great. It was great. You know, I have, I have twin five-year-olds, so it's just like, it's like going to the zoo for two days and then like <laughs> hanging out in like the lion's den, you know? <laughs> I don't know how my wife does it. <laughs> um, I'm sure they'll really appreciate this episode of Industry Focus when they're older. <laughs> Yeah, no, I had, a, I had a good weekend too. I um, I went rock climbing, and it is a lot of fun, guys. I think everyone should go rock climbing. I climbed a 40-foot wall, and I'm really scared of heights, so it was a big accomplishment for me. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know, right? And talking about other people who have had big accomplishments, you did an interview with the U.S. Bank CEO, Richard Davis. Um, Davis is actually stepping down from his position soon, but it's a really well-thought-out, long-planned move, much like everything Davis has done before. Um, but this is a really good time to talk to him and talk to him about like how he saw his role in one of America's best banks. Yeah, and if you think about it, to kind of put Richard Davis in perspective, so U.S. Bank is the fifth largest commercial bank in the United States. So you're like, like why would you dedicate a whole like podcast to U.S. Bank Corps? Unless, you know, I mean, if you're in banking, you would, you would know. But if you're not in banking, the question is, why would, why would you do that? And really, the answer is kind of twofold. First, Davis, if, if you just think about like the greatest bankers of our generation, you have like Robert Willemers at M&T Bank, you have Jamie Dimon at JPMorgan Chase, um, you have a guy named William Dimchek at PMC Financial, and you have Richard Davis. And so Richard Davis is literally, I mean, he's one of the greatest bankers of the current generation. So you, you say like, well, what can we learn from him? And we're all investors. So the question is, well, what can investors learn about being able to identify not only really good bankers, but really good banks to invest in? Yeah, and one of the so one of a little background on Richard Davis. Davis started at US Bank in Bancorp in 2006, 10 years ago, right when everything was rosy and great for the banking industry and it it turned around pretty quickly as I think most listeners know. Um and US Bancorp sailed through the financial crisis without much of a problem. Um and in fact they they managed to take their solidity through the through the financial crisis and um, grow and outperform a bunch of other banks, which is a very impressive thing to do when everyone else around you is failing. For you to be like, I'm fine, and not only am I fine, I'm gonna do great. Yeah, and and just just one one clarification. So 2006 is December 2006 when he was a promoted CEO. But Davis had actually been with U.S. Bank Corp for a little bit longer because he was part of that original group. That create there. There was a big merger, a transformative merger in I think it was 2000 between First Star and U.S. Bancorp. That then created the U.S. Bancorp that we know today. And Richard Davis was kind of the the number two guy in that deal. And then he kind of ascended through the ranks, or I mean, he, then he kind of like finished his ascent through the ranks. And then December 2006 is when he took over. And yeah, and to your point, I mean, when he took over, U.S. Bancorp was already one of the most profitable banks in the, in the country, and everything just looked just absolutely fantastic to them. But then it was. You know, not too long after that, that all the dominoes started tumbling for the financial crisis. And, and again, to your point, you know, most banks, you know, there are over 500 banks failed, you know, during and after the financial crisis. 
in the banks that didn't fail, a lot of them got picked up for pennies on the dollar by better positioned banks. And then the banks that either didn't fail or didn't get acquired by better positioned banks you really, really struggled with the financial crisis and lost a lot of money. You could think of like Bank of America and Citigroup. Well, U.S. Bancorp was one of those few banks that not only didn't fail, wasn't picked up for pennies on dollar by a competitor, didn't suffer enormous losses, and actually, to your point, emerged from the financial crisis in a stronger position, competitive position relative to its peers, uh, than it entered it. Yeah, it's it's really a very impressive thing. Um, I do want to I do want to read a little bit of the Wall Street Journal um, article on on Richard Davis stepping down as CEO because um, it just it really tickled my funny bone. Uh, the Wall Street Journal says, Mr. Davis said he doesn't have any specific plans for his future, but will never ever work for another financial institution. He plans to do something so different that I don't really know what it's going to be. Good for Mr. Davis. <laughs> Good for him. And here's one of the interesting questions. I mean, he's 59. Yeah. Okay, so and he's run the one of the most one of the best run banks in the country for a decade, and he's retiring at fifty nine. So the question is, why would you retire so early? And this has not been confirmed by U.S. Bank. In fact, I've seen they've actually come out and basically denied that this is the case. But there are credible reports that he's being considered for a position on the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. So not only is this relevant to like investors because they want to know about you know how to pick good banks, but it's also relevant because he could be a, one of the main financial policymakers in the country. And, and to be perfectly honest with you, let me let me just disclose kind of my bias. I, I think he would be a fantastic person to, to join the Federal Reserve Board. Yeah. He also kind of strikes me as the type of person that doesn't retire well. Um, shout out to my mom, who is now retired, I think, three times and is currently in New York working for um, American Express. So... <laughs> Um, but yeah, so let's let's get into some of the things he said. Um, I think Wait, let me let me let me bring up one more point, Gabby. Yeah, so sure. to kind of tease out further this this idea that not only did they survive the crisis, but they thrived through the crisis. So there is there is this kind of kind of concept, this this anti fragile concept that this guy by the name of Nassim Tlaib, he's a really famous author in the financial sphere, came up with. And that whole idea is that like, look, the 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 best kind of corporation or institution is one that actually doesn't fall apart in times of crisis and chaos, but actually gains more strength and stability during times of crisis and chaos. And that is exactly what U.S. Bancorp did. And this is really critical in banking, because if you look back 150, 160 years, the, you know, the, the United States banking industry has suffered a, some type of crisis almost once every dozen or so years. So if you're not strong enough to make it through those, you don't have a very bright future, right? Because another one's going to come down the pike. We don't know when, but another one is coming. And so then if you actually dig into the numbers of how U.S. Bancorp performed, both going into the crisis and coming out of it, there's a couple really interesting things that you see. The first is that, so right now it's the most profitable bank in the country based upon return on equity. And that's kind of your principal profitability metric in the bank industry. And it was it was one of the most profitable banks. I can't tell you exactly if it was the most profitable bank in 2006 or seven, but it was among the most profitable banks if it wasn't the most profitable bank. But here's the thing. If you compare how much higher its profitability was relative to the average bank in the industry, that margin has doubled since the financial crisis. Okay, So that's one point. So, and the point being is that it's in a much more, much stronger competitive position than it was before the crisis. The second point is that if you look at the growth, the annual growth in its book value per share, which is really the thing that's going to drive the, va the underlying value of bank stock, the rate of growth of its book value per share has accelerated 
after the crisis relative to before it. So this is a bank that, I mean, the financial crisis in one sense, and then this is not to say that it, it, it performed as well as it did in normal times during the financial crisis, because its profitability was not as high during the financial crisis. But, you know, it, it's, you, that's expected. I mean, banks are going to lose, you know, and aren't going to make quite as much money in times like that, right? But it has come out of that so much stronger. Yep. And that is why we are so excited to talk about your interview with him today, because he is he's really an underappreciated, at least amongst regular people shining light in the banking industry. Um, so let's let's kind of dig into this interview. Um, do you want to talk metrics or constituencies first? You know what? I think that the I think we should talk constituencies first because I think that, that his point was a really valuable point not only just for bank investors but for investors in general. Yeah, definitely. Um, so one of the things that Richard Davis talked about um, in this is that in, in your interview was that there are a lot of different constituencies. Um, in fact, he says, our main constituents are our customers, shareholders, employees, analysts, and the ratings agencies. Um, it's really interesting because he says that the most important of those constituents are actually the rating agencies. Right. And so you have each of these constituencies. So you think like, oh, the CEO of, of, of such a big bank, and he's also the chairman. So there's not anybody above him, quote unquote, at the bank per se. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't have constituencies that he has to answer to. Exactly. And the problem with those constituencies, I mean, there's not, not necessarily a problem, but the complication in that is that some of the constituencies have different objectives than other of the constituencies. So the question is, how do you balance those? And let me give you a very precise example. The analyst community. So these are people, men and women, who look at companies and kind of rate, look at their fundamental performance, look at the valuation of their stock, and then try to determine and then give advice on, to other investors whether these companies are, you know, something that you should, their stocks are buy, hold, or sell, right? I mean, everybody knows what analysts are. Mm -hmm. Well, the problem with the analysts is that they are focused on what's happening right now. Yeah, right? the short and term. With, in the short term, right. And quite frankly, you can even expand that a little bit more and say that they're actually interested in what happened last quarter. Because they're outsiders, they don't have access to inside data, right? So the only data they get is data that is historical. So when when a bank reports it, when a you know, U.S. bank or reports its an, quarterly uh, reports or its annual report, that's when the analysts actually get to see the data. But the ratings agencies, they are more interested in long-term stability, right? Because they're trying to say like, look. This is a company that bondholders can buy and not have to worry about, like, you know, the, the, the defaulting on their debt. And the other thing that rating agencies, that is really critical to understand about rating agencies, both for banks and for investing in any type of company, is that these are insiders. So they have access. And a, a point that Richard Davis made on the phone to me was that he can basically show any, the a person from a rating agency anything that he would show Andy Cesari who is going to take over as a CEO in April at the, at, the, at the meeting. So the rating agencies, not only are they, do they have kind of the same long-term perspective that U.S. Bancorp does and conservative philosophy towards banking in order to be safe and sound, but they also have the best data about U.S. Bancorp's not only current performance, and I mean like today's performance, but also its projections for revenue over the next 90 days. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely really interesting because I think his biggest point in here is that he has all these constituencies, like any politician, he wants to keep them all happy, but they many of them have conflicting interests, right? So you have these ratings agencies that, that dictate, and the reason the ratings agencies are so important is that they dictate um, how good of a credit risk the bank is, and so that dictates how cheaply the bank can borrow money. 
Um, right. Which is huge. And, and you want to keep them extra happy. Like that's why for him, they're the most important people. Um, but then you also have these analysts that are, are going to say like whether or not they think the bank is a buy right now. Um, and like you said, they don't have access to all the same data that the credit agents agencies do. And so it's kind of like this, this crazy dance because, um, the bank obviously wants to outperform, and that's what the analysts are really happy with. But then you have the credit agencies, and they see you outperforming, and they're like, "How are you doing that? Are you sure that's sustainable? Like, is, is are you going to be a good credit risk going forward? Like, are you doing anything hinky to outperform?" Um, I don't think that they say the word hinky. I think that that might just be me, but <laughs> you get what I'm saying. Well, yeah, I'm even taping their meetings, Gabby. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and the other point is that let me to dig into that kind of low debt rating. So, underlying his entire idea that the rating agencies are the most important constituency is this idea that or is, is this link between that your credit rating or your debt rating you know as an institution and the the price that you can borrow money at the interest rate you can borrow money at it's no different than for us like if i have a bad credit rating and you have a great credit rating gabby and you and i both go to buy a house and we both go to apply for a mortgage you're going to get a better uh, interest rate on your mortgage than i'm going to get what's well, the same exact Thing with the banks, and so why does this matter? This matters because, and you know, we've talked about this on the show before. If you think about what banks do, fundamentally, all they do is they buy money for as inexpensively as they can, either by you know getting depositors or by going out and borrowing money from institutional investors on a short or long-term basis, and then they turn around and they sell that money at a higher price by loaning it out or buying higher yielding government securities. And so the, the, the goal is to maximize that, that gap, right? Well, if you're getting your money, because US Bancor has the best debt rating in the bank industry, which means that it can get its money at the lowest possible rate of any of its competitors, it means that it, it, that gap is not only larger, so it's making more money, but it also gives it leeway to then go out and make um, to negotiate with the best performing, you know, kind of your, the most credit worthy customers to then bring into your loan book. So that also decreases your loan losses yeah. in the future. So you have that immediate impact of a lower cost of funds right. and the longer term impact of lower loan losses. And you have these customers. The, the reason that these customers are so valuable, the, the ones that are going to decrease your loan losses because they're going to pay on time, they're also very savvy. So they're looking for someone with low interest rates. Which U.S. Bancorp can offer because they've borrowed the money at such a low rate. Um, the other thing I want to mention real quick is that it's technically not a zero-sum game. Like there can be multiple companies with the with the best credit rating, um, but it's very very difficult to attain. Yeah, and and another point that that Davis made about the credit the credit rating is that <clears throat> look, going into the crisis. Not the the corporate the large corporations. They didn't have. Everybody just assumed that banks were pretty much safe, right? I mean, it was, we went through some pretty you know hairy times during the 1970s and 1980s in the banking industry. But other than that, over the last you know eight or nine decades since the Great Depression, has been relatively quiet. But the financial crisis made them realize and made them become much more discerning customers. And so what they use is kind of you know to to direct which bank to go towards. Uh, in terms of bringing their deposits, is the bank's credit rating because it, it's supposed to suggest whether they're safe and sound. So then, what's interesting is that you know, kind of to build off those you know things that it gained in the financial crisis, in the five years after the financial crisis, so 2008, 2009, 2010, 11, and 12, its deposits grew on an organic basis, i.e., not through acquisitions, but just through more companies and people bringing their money to U.S. Bancor by a double-digit percentage in five consecutive years. It is the only large bank that is even close to that. There are, there are other banks that grew their deposits you know, 
by double digit percentages one year or two years, but none that grew them for five grew it at that rate for five consecutive years. Yeah. So that's and that's part of the reason why when you look at their valuation now, it's so much higher compared to other banks, even after the little Trump bump where you saw all banks go up like thirty percent in in a quarter. US Bancor is still rated amongst investors as one of the most most sought after banks, one of the most valuable banks. Um, which brings us to the third set of stakeholders. So you have these analysts who want these short term results. So you have these um, credit agencies who are really worried about the like long term functioning. And in the third camp, kind of grouped with the credit agencies, but operating at a different level in terms of the bank, are the investors who also want to see long term results, um, but who are also interested in these short term results. And it's, it's this balance that he has to keep. Everyone happy, but here's the, here's the interesting thing about U.S. Bancor shareholders. So shareholders are not all the same, right? I mean, you have some shareholders that are day traders, you have some shareholders that are long-term investors, you have some that are like value long-term investors, or some that are growth long-term investors. Well, the, the, the particular type of investor that U.S. Bancor gets just so happens to be very similar to the type of investors that Warren Buffett gets. In fact. Warren Buffett's company, Berkshire Hathaway, is one of U.S. Bancor's largest shareholders. And so, and these investors, they're value, they're value-oriented on a long-term basis. They're looking for long-term growth. So it's you have this really uh, convenient alignment for U.S. Bancor between both its own conservative operating philosophy, the pers- perspective of its long-term shareholders. And the perspective of rating agencies, and you put all those things together in U.S. Bancor, and then you 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 add it with its performance metrics, and it's it's just right now. I mean, it's just in an almost unassailable competitive position. Definitely, um, I'm I'm just going to move us along because we're starting to run out of time. Um, let's talk about efficiency ratios. Um, what is an efficiency ratio? Very easy question for you. Yeah, so efficiency ratio. This just measures the percentage of revenue that a bank spends on operating expenses. Yes, and so the lower the efficiency ratio, the better. And most banks shoot for an efficiency ratio of around sixty percent. Um, drum roll! I don't think you can hear that. Um, <laughs> it's a very quiet drum. <laughs> what is U.S. Bank Corps' uh, efficiency ratio? The U.S. Bank Corps' efficiency ratio last year, its gap efficiency ratio, which is just taking your non-interest expenses, so your operating expenses divided by your net revenue, was fifty-five percent. That is really good for people That's who really don't know. Um, so amongst the other like top top big banks, you have Bank of America sitting at 66%, Wells Fargo and City both around 59, JP Morgan around 58. And those are the the big banks and they I mean in general they they operate pretty well um, below the eighth largest bank. Most banks efficiency ratios are are pretty are pretty above 60%. Um, there is an exception. I think New York Community Bank Corps is maybe the country's 25th biggest bank, but it's doing this thing where it's been sitting at around $48.9 billion in assets so that it doesn't um, trip the regulatory threshold for having more um, regulations put on it. And its, uh, its efficiency ratio is abnormally low at 44.5%. And it's a really interesting bank because of the niche that it lives in. It lends primarily to people in New York City, to people who are looking for multifamily residences, so read that as apartment buildings. And New York City is a great place to do that because of rent control. So you know that your building's always going to be full of tenants, and you know that the tenants are going to pay on time because they're living in some of the cheapest apartments on, in the city, and that means landlords always make their payments. And since New York and since New York Community Bank Corps is 
operating in this like very special environment, its costs are much lower and its um, income is much more reliable than other banks, hence the very, very low efficiency ratio. So, barring that, 55% is incredible. Yeah, 55% is, is incredible for a general, because U.S. Bancorp is more of a general purpose bank. Exactly. But I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought up New York Community Bancorp because it, it, it illustrates a really important point. So let me, let me kind of pull up a little bit and give a kind of a broader perspective, and then we'll kind of dig in a little bit more. But so in, I think it was this 1990 shareholder letter, 1991 shareholder letter, where Warren Buffett, and I, I talk about Warren Buffett a lot in terms of banking because he really understands banking. He really, really, uh, perhaps more than anybody but these, the, those great bankers I listed at the very beginning of this show, Warren Buffett understands it more. And he says, look, if you want to outperform the industry, uh, in if you want to outperform in an industry that is highly commoditized, just like banking is, two things have to be the case. Either one, you got to have a niche product where you can earn outsized margins because you have expertise in that particular area that nobody else has, or you have to be the low-cost producer. Okay, so that New York Community Bank or it's in that niche area, and that's why it's able to outperform. That's why it's been able to outperform the industry so much over the last few decades. Well, here's what's so interesting about what Richard Davis has to say about the efficiency ratio and kind of how that plays into how Warren Buffett sees banking. Richard Davis says, look, you don't drive efficiency through lowering expenses. You drive efficiency through increasing your revenue. And here's a quick, there's a great quote he gave. Let me pull that up. He says, he who has the lowest efficiency ratio also often has the biggest revenue, which is in the denominator. So then he goes, and this is true. So if you go, if you if you look at not the efficiency ratio, but if you actually look at say expenses as a percentage of assets, U.S. bankers' expenses as a percentage of assets is actually higher than a lot of these other big banks. But its revenue as a percentage of assets is much much higher than its expenses on on a relative basis relative to expenses and so that's why its efficiency ratio is so low and so then you say well well like look well how do you get your efficiency ratio so low and the answer to that in the US Bancorp's case is twofold number one and this kind of ties back into Buffett's point Richard Davis says you got to go after businesses where number one uh, so let me give you the exactly exactly what he said a bank needs to look at what it does and get into businesses where it can, one, be better than everyone else, two, or where it can has skills that no one else has, or three, where it can outperform its own history. So he's basically saying that, look, Warren Buffett's paradigm, and I don't think he meant to say it like this, but this is kind of how I look at it. He's saying, look, Warren Buffett's paradigm, where it's either, be, if you want to outperform, you either have to be a niche operator or the low-cost operator, those two things are not mutually exclusive. In fact, you can be a low-cost operator by running it through a niche operation, because that will make your efficiency ratio, that will jack up your revenue, make your efficiency ratio go down. Yeah. Um, and I think that the point that he's kind of driving at is that it's okay to spend money on expenses too, because that means that your underwriting quality is really, really strong, and that helps drive higher revenue. Right. And then another point that he makes is that look, you can't be dogmatic about these types of things. So, over, because this the bank industry is in such a tough revenue environment because interest rates are so low, the question is, you know, you, you do you then, you know, starve, you know, innovation and investment and stuff like that just in order to, you know, get a couple basis points here or there on your efficiency ratio, or you do, do you continue to invest? And one of the things he says is that look, when we talk, when we think about efficiency, 
we run it through this this uh, this concept of you know this idea of return on investment. We're not going to starve off expenses just for the sake of starving off expenses. What we're going to do is, if you want to go out and spend money, and so this is like Richard Davis talking to his his folks. If you want to go out and spend money, that's fine. But you got to have the numbers that the returns are going to be there. And so then what they do is, then the people who have these ideas, they get they go in front of these committees that determine if they want to make these investments. But again, it, it all goes back to this idea that if you want a really low efficiency ratio, the running it through the expense side may actually not be the most effective. You want to run it through your revenue side, and you can do that by thinking about making sure that you're making always very good, profitable investments. Yes, and I actually want to get into some words that you said earlier, which is the importance of being flexible and non-dogmatic. Um, which is it, it's kind of a recurring theme in the interview that you had with him, um, and it has it, it's related to everything to do with from the financial crisis to whether or not investors should um, buy at certain times. Yeah, and you know when I think about the, that non dogmatic thing, there I think about, and I've talked about this book before the, in, in, on this show in the past. I think about Phil Tetlock's book, A Super Forecaster. So Tetlock is this guy who's like an expert, one of like the world's leading experts, not the world's leading expert on forecasting, and he and he looks at like there are certain people who are better forecasters than others, and he kind of digs into what qualities they evidence that makes them makes them able to be such good forecasters, and one of them is that they eschew dogma. So. The, you know, in the banking industry, so that's basically the exact same thing that Richard Davis is saying. And, and one of the examples he gives is that, look, just recent in one of the recent quarters, they increased their loan loss provisions. And they were one of the only big banks, not the only big bank, to actually increase loan loss provisions uh, last quarter. Which I'm and guessing the, made analysts freak out because they're like, what's wrong with the bank? That's exactly right. So analysts are like, whoa, you hiding something in your portfolio. And he was saying, like, look, like, Banks are still growing their loan portfolios right now. When you're growing your loan portfolio, the responsible thing to do is to increase your provisions because even the best-run banks are even, once in a while experience loan losses, and you want your provision, you want a provision ahead of that to be prepared for those loan losses. And he's just saying, like, look, we're just doing the responsible thing. You want to prepare for crises ahead of them, right? As opposed to wait, wait until they actually strike. But again, that kind of goes back to that point that. Analyst, because provisions act on your income in the same way that expenses do, analysts don't want to see those provisions go up, right? So they're thinking again about either right now, the short term, or kind of looking in hindsight, whereas Richard Davis and other great bankers, other great investors, other great business people are constantly looking forward. Right. And the dogma in this case that he's ignoring is the analyst's idea that um, if your bank is growing really quickly, then that's great and that you should just continue putting more resources resources into growing loans as opposed to putting resources into protecting yourself from potential future failure. And that, right. that, that's that's the thing. That's the, that's what he's trying to get at when he says like I'm don't be dogmatic. Like don't don't just stick to what everyone thinks you should do. You should do what you think is right. That's right. And and let me let me expand on that point that you made because I think you were actually I think I answered a different question than you asked me. So in the investment space where that dogma comes into play is like let's say you know like at the Motley Fool we are really against market timing because there are studies that show that if you're like a day trader or somebody who's just ex exclusively focused on timing the market you're going to underperform the market so you might as well just dollar cost average into a low cost exchange traded fund that tracks the broader market okay that's the best way to do it if you think that you're going to like scoot in and out however so that's the general rule you don't want to time the market however there are exceptions to that right and so if stocks are really I mean if they're just un it, 
indisputably really high, if you think that they are, you might want to tailor back the rate of, uh, of your investments at that time period and wait till a correction because historically corrections happen once every year. You know, a correction is, you know, if it drops 10% or more in the market. So, you know, you, as a general rule, again, dogmatically, you, you know, you want to avoid timing the market. However, there are exceptions because you also want to be aware of where the market is at in one particular time because you may want to, you know, change the rate of your investments depending on where the market is at. Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely a lot more interesting stuff that we can talk about in this interview, but um, I know that you're actually writing an article about this, right? Or two? I am. One yeah, it's two. coming out. I, yeah, there'll be a few things coming out here pretty soon. But, um, but yeah, so, so so stay tuned. It'll be it's a good article. It's, it's coming together really great. Yeah, and if you guys want that article, definitely uh, email us at industryfocus at fool or by tweeting us at MF Industry Focus. But if you email us, I will definitely respond a lot faster because I don't really know how to use the Twitter, despite being a young person. <laughs> uh, although maybe not. I had to use an antiacid this morning, so who knows. Um, <laughs> As usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks so much for joining us, John. Thank you to Richard Davis, if you happen to listen to our humble podcast, for letting John interview you. And thanks to the listeners for letting us natter on for so long. Um, Happy birthday to my favorite producer, Austin Morgan. Austin, how old are you? The ripe old age of 26. Oh, my God. Oh, you are a spring chicken, Austin. (laughs) I hope you have a great birthday. Uh, Thanks to everyone for listening, and I hope everyone has a great week. 